Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Denver United. Thanks for coming to worship God with us this morning. It's so good to see so many of you in bodily form. We've been together in spirit. Jesus Church has indeed not been able to be stopped, but it's great to be together in person more and more each week. Good morning to all of you who are worshiping with us house to house. We're so glad that we can be one family even while we're in many locations. God's word is unchanging. His presence is promised, and it's so great to be a part of the family of God with all of you. You know, growing up in the church, I was uh, fortunate to be part of a family that had as one of our core values, we go to church. So we would have been the family lined up on the couch with the, the, the YouTube service starting. We would have had the YouTube kids service. We would have been put in front of the TV in the basement to watch that if there was YouTube or the internet. Were TVs invented when we were kids? So much has changed. But my family, I am so grateful for this, took faith in Jesus seriously. One of the things that I'm so grateful for that's a part of my life faith heritage is my parents would pray for my sister and me every night before we'd go to bed. They'd lead us in saying our prayers and taught us how to pray and taught us the value and some centrality of connecting with God in that way. We, my parents are people of discipline and routine and, and that was really helpful as a kid. We would pray a familiar bedtime prayer. At least we'd start with this. Now I lay me down to sleep. Yeah, anyone else? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. It's all good. But then it always, it took a little bit of a grim turn if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. Good night, son. Love you. And so being stuck inside my brain, I would lie in bed thinking about all the ways that I might die before I wake. And as a seven-year-old, you don't think about the improbability of that. Like my life expectancy is very high. Risk factors when I'm sleeping, my heart rate goes down. I mean, if I'm going to die as a seven-year-old, it's vastly more likely it's going to happen while I'm awake and I run out after a ball in front of a bus and smack or something like that, right? But nonetheless, because I prayed it every night, I think it just got into me that it was a, a, a prescient, real possibility. And so I was afraid, I think, a little bit of that. And I would lie in bed thinking not only about the impending death before I wake, but whether or not indeed the Lord my soul would take. And it made it sound, even though this wasn't the intent of the prayer, like that was perpetually in the balance. Like tonight, if I were to die before I wake, the Lord might take my soul. But tomorrow night, if I died before I wake, I mean, all bets are off. Who knows where my soul goes? And so I lived with this, I, with this fear that I, I might die and then the Lord might or might not take my soul. And I mean, frankly, as a kid, the thought of the Lord not taking my soul was only slightly less alarming than the thought of him taking my soul. Like, where is he taking my soul? How does this all work? So what I did was I I kind of filled in the theological, theological gaps with my childish perceptions of religion based on what I would cobble together at church and things like that. And I think I thought that as much as I thought about it, I had better do good things and not do bad things in order for the likelihood to increase that the Lord would indeed take my soul, which in the balance seemed like the better option of the two. Did anyone else do this? And so I remember going to bed thinking, oh man, I might die before I wake. Did I do anything today 
that I need to ask God to forgive me for, lest I die and God be like, sorry, but you were like rude on the playground, so I'm not taking your soul. And, and I think that got into me, right? There is a pervasive legalism in Christian experience because our souls sort of left to themselves want to go that way. And too often, sadly, church actively or at least tacitly reinforces that notion. And so I came into young adulthood with a, a murkier understanding of what it means to be righteous, to be right before God. What is righteous? And that's our title this morning, Righteous. Uh-huh. Righteous! Righteous! Yeah! What does it have to do with finding Nemo? Absolutely nothing. However, that is the single best cinematic expression of that word ever, and so why not use it, right? Some of you are looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm going to have fun in church. You go on acting like it should be boring. That's fine. I'm happy to agree to disagree. All right. It's going to be fun for me, though. Here we go. Righteous is our title. We are in a series called Awakening, looking at the 23rd Psalm as the prism through which we engage in this yearly rhythm of prayer, fasting, and consecration, starting the year off by returning to Jesus as the center and first place in our hearts. So the 23rd Psalm, we've been going through like a roadmap, verse by verse and idea by idea. Here's what it reads. The Lord is my shepherd, familiar verses, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's what we talked about last week. And if you missed any of the preceding weeks, you can get them online for free as always at denverunited.com or subscribe to the podcast. But these do build on one another. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen. It continues in verse three this morning. When God is my shepherd, when I allow him to lead me in that way, here's what he does. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, I imagine a a wooded area with a number of unmarked paths, and maybe it's because I'm a mountain biker and I've gotten lost enough times and my app isn't downloading out in the middle of nowhere, and so I'm not sure which path to take, and you got to kind of use educated guesswork. But it seems as though the metaphor here contemplates the idea that there are multiple paths that are called righteousness, quote-unquote, but God leads us in paths of his righteousness for his namesake. There are, it would seem from Jesus' teaching, at least two distinct paths of righteousness that have very different ends. Look in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount said, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And now what may or may not be clear to us by way of context was unmistakable, front and center evident to Jesus' hearers, religious and not. Most all of the crowd gathered to listen to Jesus were people who were from the common class in this religious cultural hierarchy. But these Pharisees and teachers of the law 
whom Jesus references, they were not just the pastors. They were the pastors and the senators and the reality TV stars that didn't pick Bachelorette one or two. They were all of those in one. They were the central figures in first century Jewish culture. Everybody, regardless of how far along the road of religion or how little regard they might have paid it, everybody knew who Jesus was talking about. And they all caught the shocking implication. Unless your righteousness is better than like the righteousness ninjas, you don't even get to enter the kingdom. Well, what, have I, what hope have I? That's like saying, unless you're basketball game is better than LeBron James. Like, unless your voice is better than Beyonce, you're not going to enter. You don't get a chance. Well, peace out, man. I've got nothing. I'm screwed. That's kind of how they would have thought. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship observed, between these disciples and the law stands one who has perfectly fulfilled it one with whom they live in communion. They are faced not with a law that has never yet been fulfilled, but with one whose demands have already been satisfied. The righteousness it demands is already there, the righteousness of Jesus, which submits to the cross because that is what the law demands. Listen, this righteousness is therefore not a duty owed, but a perfect and personal communion with God. Jesus differentiates all of the righteousness of striving to keep up with the religious Joneses and follow the rules around the rules around the rules that these rabbis establish generation after generation that just bury people in hopelessness. Jesus goes on, in Matthew 5 to, to say, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. And if you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. And again, you've heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks with lust has already committed adultery in their hearts. Jesus to the casual hearer at first understanding seems to just be putting another fence around the Torah to taking this thing another level up. And they're like, man, if I couldn't keep their rules and their rules about their rules and their rules about all the other rules, how am I going to be able to do that? So I got to obey the rules and I got to have my heart pure at all times. Like the heart purity policemen are watching. How is that even possible? But see, that was just Jesus' point. People kept raising the bar. It seemed at first like he was raising the bar again, but actually he was making the entirely opposite point, that God's righteousness works not from the outside in at all, no matter how many rules you make. God's righteousness works from the inside out. Human attempts at righteousness, those work outside in, and we've seen how those go in every generation. Jesus observed in Luke 11, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. 
and see you keep trying to clean the outside and make that make the inside okay but outside in righteousness suffers on several levels not the least of which is it never gets in there's always more outside to deal with right that's the problem. When I was a young officer in the United States Army, I had a bunch of even younger soldiers who were right off the farm and right out of the inner city and figuring life out for the first time. I had one soldier I've shared with you before was a car enthusiast, had a little bit of money for the first time. His meals and housing were provided, nothing better to spend it on, and he went out and bought a nice new car. He had this beautiful Ford Mustang. Man, he loved this car. He would polish it and wax it and detail it. He'd even like get the car vac and go into, you know, like the black hole that your keys fall in and you got to go in there and scrape your knuckles up to get them out. He would get rock chips and then he would sand it down and put like the paint repair on it. And um, was so proud of how, how well he kept his car until one day, fast forward a while, his car literally stopped running on the side of the road. So he called the platoon sergeant who's like, you know, one part battle leader and one part like surrogate dad goes to get his soldier and the platoon sergeant's like, the guy's like, I don't know what happened. He's like, did you hit something? He's like, I have no idea. I don't think so, but I take such good care of the car. It must be defective. And the platoon sergeant going through a checklist mentally and he's like, when's the last time you had the oil changed? And he's like, the soldier goes, what do you mean? (laughs) Obviously there were some gaps in his upbringing, but for him, good-heartedly, he spent more time probably maintaining his car than the rest of us, good-heartedly doing everything he could to make this car nice, but didn't even realize you had to change the oil. So the platoon sergeant gets in there, and the oil was like peanut butter. <laughs> and so he had major engine damage and had to have it repaired, learned a costly but valuable life lesson. I think that's easy to laugh at, except we all kind of go through phases in life. Maybe you're in one now where that's exactly what we do with our soul thinking, if I can just polish the outside more, then that'll impress everybody. That'll make me believe that I'm righteous. But righteousness, God reveals, doesn't work that way. This time every year, we have people, even if they don't consciously regard God, all the more for those of us in the church that do, renew our intentionality with New Year's resolutions or spiritualized versions of that, where we're going to come back to God, or we're going to get get things together by, by getting our act together. You know, have you ever tried to come back to God by getting your act together? I just need to get this right and that right and this and that. And what ends up happening is we're sort of playing life whack-a-mole, right? We're, we're always back on our heels and another one comes up and we're trying to whack it and we're trying to whack it, but there's always more moles than your dexterity, They just keep coming up. And then eventually, by what, mid-March, you're like, ah, forget it. I can't. There's no way. But that's just Jesus' point. There is no way. And this brings us to a point where we must make a brief theological excursion of the utmost importance. And if you're the person that, that enjoys the theological excursions and that's sort of what a, a sermon is to you, it's give me the meat, pastor, you know, then, then, then we're about to do that. If you're the one that sort of tunes out or, you know, checks social media during that point and when you get to the inspo parts again or the, you know, the points or whatever, then you tune back in, bear with me. Give me a couple minutes. This is literally the utmost importance to our faith. Okay, Titus chapter 3, here's what the Word of God says. God saved us not because of the righteous things we had done. 
but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior because of his grace. He made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. The truth that lies at the core of Christianity is that we cannot achieve salvation by trying to be righteous. It's impossible. People have spent lifetimes trying and failing. We receive salvation by having been made righteous. Righteousness is something not which we can achieve, but something which we must receive. Righteous is not the result of doing good, a little, a lot, more in the balance than we do bad or otherwise. Righteous is the result of God's grace. And so if that is the core of the gospel, it also begs the question, why then worry about doing things right? What does it matter? (laughs) That's kind of free. I'm off the hook. That's good news, right? Well, the Apostle Paul addresses that very question in Romans 6, having just laid out the premise we established a moment ago about how we're saved by receiving Christ's righteousness as a gift of God's grace. He writes in Romans 6, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of this wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died, we were buried with Christ by baptism. Of course, the baptism itself isn't the act of grace. It's a representation of what God has done in our hearts. But baptism depicts we die with Christ and then we come alive again with him. We don't stay dead. That's, it's not nihilism, right? The, the, the proper response to God's grace and righteousness is we die with Christ and then self-abnegate for the rest of our lives. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying we know that our old sinful selves, verse 6, were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. And we're no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. And so there's more to the story after receiving righteousness in Christ as a gift of God's grace. We don't achieve it. We receive it. But then we receive it having died to the old in order that we can get on with the new. And here's the point of this brief theological excursion. Doing good, simply put, is not righteousness. You have heard it said that that is so, But that is not true. God's truth is not a better truth. God's truth is the only truth. And something that has exalted itself against that truth is simply deception. 
even if it was innocently or well-meaningly pervade. Doing good is not righteousness. Jesus is righteousness. Doing good, then, is the outflow. It is the fruit of righteousness. In Philippians 1, Paul writes, This is my prayer that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Listen, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it's not for the purpose of earning God's favor, being righteous enough that we can achieve salvation, but rather it's for the purpose of God's glory and praise flowing out of righteousness itself, which comes from Jesus. So there is a place for doing good, but it's not in order to get God's attention, get gold stars on someone's chart, impress the people around us, or deceive ourselves into thinking that if we die before we wake, God might in fact take our soul at the end of the day. This is the path of righteousness that God leads us on when we come to him and put him first in our lives and allow him to be our shepherd. When the Lord is our shepherd, he leads us on this sort of path of righteousness. Here's generally what it looks like. Step one, trying and failing at legalistic righteousness. We have to go there. He, the scripture says, gave us the law so that we would see that we're sinful and can't keep it and we need his grace. Trying and failing at legalistic righteousness is part of the path he leads us on, but it's not the end. It's just the very beginning. Then being made righteous in Christ, that moment when we come to Jesus and say, I can't do this on my own. I need you. Not by anything good in me, but because of all the good in you, what you've done for me, I receive your forgiveness. I receive your righteousness. And by that, I am saved. And then the third step on his path of righteousness is the Holy Spirit who comes to live in our hearts through faith, growing good fruit in our lives. That's the path of righteousness that God leads us on when we come to him, our good shepherd. So where does this leave us? He leads me in paths of righteousness, the passage reads, for his name's sake. See, the way that many of us learned it, the way I grew up interpolating the dots as I lay in bed at night, is that he leads me in paths of righteousness for my soul's sake, so that my soul has a prayer of God not discarding it should I die before I wake. It's not for my sake at all. It's for the sake of his name that he leads me on that path. We are his children through Christ, his daughters and his sons, adopted into his family. We represent his name. It's for his name's sake. My dad growing up would, um, and this used to, used to not infuriate me, but I'd be like, oh, dad, endless eye rolls. But he, he had this series, never-ending series of father lectures. He would number them. I think that they were arbitrarily numbered, but he would always say, this is like father lecture number 16. And this was father lecture number 37. He would say, you're a Brendel. You represent this name. And while you live in this home, you're going to honor this name and care for our name. And I think God is saying something like that. 
He's saying he leads us in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name, for the sake of his good reputation, and for the sake of his redemptive work in the world. And the bottom line is this, Jesus grows righteousness out of our hearts and into our lives in order to represent him in the world. He grows righteousness from our heart outward into our lives. Because while outside-in righteousness doesn't work, it never gets into the heart, there's always one more rock chip to repair. There's always one more smear on the dashboard to armor all. Inside-out righteousness does. It works its way out. Guard your heart, Scripture says, because from it flow the rivers of life, right? Out, there's a current that goes from the heart out. It doesn't flow in. But when Jesus' righteousness makes our heart new, it works its way out over time into every part of our life as long as we don't block it. We are his ambassadors to this lost and dying generation. We are given to participate in Jesus' mission. He said, behold, I am making all things new. Now, it could be that God could have come down with the make all things new fairy and wave the restoration wand and just turn everything green and bright. But as it happens, that's not the way he chose to do it. It revealed God in his character, in his nature, his love for his creation, humanity, you, me, and all of them. It revealed God for who he is. It rightly paints his name that he does that restoration work through us. So we are his ambassadors. We are participating his inside-out restoration in our own lives of his renewal of all things things out there, things in them. And listen, friends, the world needs no more help misunderstanding God's name. Sadly, any of us who's lived for a decade or more has seen his name dragged through the mud as televangelists talk all about Jesus in flashy clothes only to be caught in bed with their assistants. The world needs no help throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it's treated to images all day on a loop on cable news of people praying earnestly and calling on the name of Jesus while they're storming the capital and creating a state of lawlessness. The world needs no help misunderstanding the name and the intentions of the God who created them and loves them and died so that they could be forgiven and free. What we're talking about is integrity. Our life growing to reflect the reality of our inner transformation. The fruit of the way we live aligning with the righteousness of Jesus that has rebooted our lives. So what kind of picture does your life paint? What's coming out of us must flow from and must reflect what's happening in us. God's righteousness asks not for your behavior. It asks for your heart. 
In Psalm 86, the word of God says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness, not rely on my own white knuckle grip on the controls of legalistic righteousness. Never works, never works. I don't know who it frustrates more, us or the people watching us who get let down again. That I may rely on your faithfulness, though. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, that I may demonstrate your name truthfully in my generation. Give me an undivided heart. Ah, see, this gets to where the rubber meets the road. I think many of us find ourselves surrendered to Jesus except where we're not. We sort of divide the hard drive of our hearts and there's all the stuff that we bring into the light and submit to the Lord Jesus. But then there on, is on the up, other side of that firewall, uh, the, the, on the dark side of the partition, there is that which we do not bring before him because we're ashamed of it or because it wrecks us to bring it into the light. Or because secretly, we still like it. Whatever it is. There is in most of our hearts that which we have surrendered and that which we have not. We've locked away like in a safe room in our hearts. And whether we've spoken this out loud or even thought it consciously, what we've said in effect to Jesus is, I'll submit to you everything but that. You can't go there. And Jesus says, will you let me in? Will you let me go there? Will you trust me even with that? What's in your safe room? What are you holding back in your life from the lordship of Jesus? For some of us, it's our finances. That's the final frontier. We submit everything else, but that we're going to hold on to. I loved what Mari shared about how that demonstrates faith. Submission in that final frontier is submission. Maybe it's your sexuality. Like, God, I can't trust you to fulfill me. Maybe for another, it's this ongoing battle with truthfulness. Like, I compulsively misrepresent myself because I want people to think I'm someone that I'm not. Or maybe it's gossip. Or maybe it's rage. I just want to ask you a couple of questions for reflection as we close. Perhaps write these down or you could just take a picture on the screen of the screen when they're both up there. And as we enter week three of awakening, during our time of prayer, and fasting, and consecration, I challenge you to reflect on these questions. Think them through. The first is this. When in your life have you tried to be righteous from the outside in? Think of a time or a season. Maybe like you, like me, it was when you were a child. Maybe it was like two weeks ago. Now, how did that go? How did it work out? And the second question is, where is your heart divided? 
what's on the dark side of that partition. This year, as we begin 2021 with a time of awakening, of coming back to Jesus and saying, I want everything you have for me. There are many things that concern me in life, but you are my chief concern. I will seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and let all these things flow from there, from the inside out. So what's blocking that? Would you stand with me? It's time for us to pray and then we'll respond in worship. Father, in Jesus' name, pray for my friends. I pray for our family of your followers. Lord God, that you would illuminate in our hearts where we have believed a lie, tried to be righteous by gutting it out, by white-knuckling it, that you would heal us from having tried and failed and gotten discouraged or walked away. Lord Jesus, would you make us new? We want, as your word teaches, to become the righteousness of Christ. And then from that, to see you grow fruit of that righteousness. Lord, we pray that you would illuminate where our hearts are divided and give us grace to bring every area of our hearts before you and submit them, to bring everything into your light. Lord, I pray that you would help my friends to trust you even in the areas that have been the closest hold, the most painful, the most elemental to our false identity, that we could live into our true identity as your sons and daughters. We love you, God. We thank you for the Spirit of God at work in us that leads us in your path of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 